My subject this morning is faith, our faith, and our freedom. And so I want to talk to you about your faith and your freedom. We're going to start with Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In the uh, New King James, it says that now faith is the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. So we need to ask the question, what is our object of our faith? For many people, it's their church, it's their denomination. For a lot of people, it's uh, the rules and the regulations that that particular denomination has. But what is the object of your faith? Well, I'm thinking that every one of you would probably say, well, Jesus Christ is the object of our faith, and indeed, he is. When we begin to know Jesus, we know God. And then we get a glimpse of his character. Jesus Christ is our substance. Now, the book of Hebrews not only defines faith, but it also reveals the object of our faith. Not many Christians, I don't know why it is, but not many Christians focus on the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote the book, some thought it was Paul, but then later found out that it wasn't. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews gave to us the most wonderful message in the Bible. It tells us about Christ, who he is, what he has done for you and for me, and then it reveals the new covenant. And so the real question that we need to ask ourselves do we find ourselves living in the new covenant or are we still in the old covenant? Do we actually live in grace or do we still cling to the law? Now, I can speak for myself as one who strongly clung to the law for 15 years. And as an evangelist, I tried to mix the two. I tried to make sense out of Scripture because there's a lot of behavior texts in the New Testament. And so I thought, how could I balance those behavior texts with Paul's writings about the law has been done away with? We're not under the law. The law is a curse. And so we don't need the law. And so I was thinking, how do I balance all those things? And I, and I did my best. I tried. I studied hard. I tried to balance it all out. And, you know, I found out that it really wasn't a balance at all. Um, so in the book of Hebrews, it explains the superiority of this new covenant. And I want us to just to look at it here. In Hebrews 8.6, the Bible says, 
But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Now the New Testament tells us then that there are better promises pertaining to the new covenant than there was in the old. But you know, as I studied the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, believers were justified by faith alone, apart from the law. Does the law involve faith? No. There's no faith in keeping the law. It does not, faith does not enter into it. In Galatians 3.12, the Bible says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So the Bible says that the law is not of faith. Now, faith is believing. But here in Paul's writings to Timothy, 1 Timothy here is 8 and 9. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Now, I want you to focus on this because we're going to find out what Jesus said about the law, what Paul said about the law. But Paul, writing to Timothy, says we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. Then the Bible says, for the sexuality immoral, this is what the law is for, for those who practice homosexuality, for slaves, traitors, and liars, and perjurers, and for who for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to us. So the Bible is very plain. Paul simply says, he is saying that the law is exclusively for unbelievers. The law is not for believers. It is for unbelievers. In the Old Testament, the law was given to the Jews. Today, the law speaks to only one group of people, and that is unbelievers. Now, those of us who are Gentiles, we were never under the law. We just put ourselves under the law. And that is what people are doing today. They're putting themselves under the law. God never intended that. But in our passion to want to please God through self-effort, we end up putting ourselves under the law. And what we have today is a lot of Christians who agree that the ceremonial law, the restricting of certain foods in your diet, and even wearing certain fabric in your clothing, they are not for Christians today. Almost all Christians feel that the ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. It's not for us today. But then we find ourselves cherry-picking certain laws, picking them out and putting them into our lives. And we put them 
we put ourselves under the law when we do that. Well, some say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments, after all, they're our moral guide. And believe it or not, that most churches today, they do believe that we are still obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. But Paul had a real struggle. And we find in Romans 7, 7 and 8, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. Well, where is the coveting law? It's on two tablets of stone. It's the Ten Commandments. It's not the ceremonial law. And yet Paul says that he would not have known what coveting was. And then he says, if the law has said to you, you shall not covet. Now, what was Paul's struggle is our struggle. Here, Paul, he says here in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, what was engraved on letters of stone? The Ten Commandments. And Paul says, which was engraved in letters on stone came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Transisting through it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So here it is. Paul makes it plain. And, and then in Romans 6.14, it says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now there's something that we need to understand about the law. The law was never designed to save anyone. It was only to show the need of salvation. Abraham, he was saved 400 years before the law came to Moses. And the Bible says he was saved by faith. What about the law? I mean, after all, Jesus said that Till heaven and earth shall pass away, not one jot or one tittle will be, be means, by, by no means will be passed away. Paul said that the law is holy, just, and good. The law is not dead. The law is alive today. But Christians are dead to the law. And there's a big difference. Well, what does it really mean? Well, as we read before, Paul says that the law is good if it is properly, if it's used properly. That's why it's good, holy, and just. We know that the law was given to, given us to lead us to Christ. In fact, those 613 laws from murder eating the right foods, for wearing the right fabric, for the sacrificial system, 
When you read all 613 of those laws, you come to one conclusion. There is no way in this world that any human being could follow all those laws and keep them correctly. And that's when the law is doing its job. That's exactly what it was designed for. It was designed to show us that it's impossible for us to keep the letter of the law. And we come to that conclusion that, look, I can't do it. If, they, if God requires me to do that, I need help. I can't do it. There's nobody that can do it. And now the law is doing the work that God intended it for to do. It points us to Jesus Christ. It points us to Christ who fulfilled the law. And he fulfilled it for you. Paul said, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And what does Peter say? Peter says that we have everything we need for this life and for godliness. We don't have to go searching for some new experience. We don't have to be going searching for some new form of doctrine. The Bible makes it very clear that God has given us everything that we need for this life and for godliness. But why is it that most Christians are not free? They don't feel free in Christ. Why is that? The real issue, I believe, is that they do not really understand everything that has already been done for them through Christ. They do not understand it. When, the, when, when Hebrews says that we are perfect forever, that's foreign to most people. They can't, well, no, there's nothing perfect about me. And they, they, they misunderstand what has happened to them when they were converted. The real issue I see is believing what God says is true about you. That's the real issue, is actually believing God. And you know, faith is simply believing. So when Abraham said that he had faith in God, he believed in God. When you and I believe what God says is true about us, our life begins to change. There's a change that takes place. We begin to relax. We are less, less anxious. We experience what it is to know that God truly does love us just the way we are. We come to the understanding that, yes, God came into our life for a reason, and that reason was for him to express himself through us. You are very unique. There's nobody like you. And God chose you to work through you. Now, it seems that most Christians, when they're converted, they want to do everything that is right. I mean, they want to please God. So you just tell them what they should do, whether they should read their Bibles, have quiet time, do all these things. 
That's what they want to do. But they want to do it because they want to make the right choices in life. And they believe that if they do all of these things, that they will make those right choices. But they want some sort of sign. And I have to be truthful, I was one who wanted it too. You want some sort of sign, some sort of message. That's why a lot of people, when they pray, and I used to do it, they pray and then they'd open up their Bible and they'd start reading the Bible and see if God would speak to them. They want to know what God wants to do with their life. They want to know who to marry, what kind of car they should buy, what kind of house they should buy. And so oftentimes, when you look for signs or evidence of the reality of God, it leads you the wrong way. It is a path towards legalism. Now, I don't know if you've heard it, but through the 50 years that I've been a Christian, I've heard it dozens of times when people have said, you know, God spoke to me. God, and, and I used to think to myself, well, how did God speak to them and he doesn't speak to me that way? Um, out west, I served in Washington State. There was two couples. They were both doctors. And... Um, these two couples began to do a lot of things together. They belonged to the same church, and, and they just were very, very good and close friends. And somehow, they came to the conclusion that they had married the wrong person. Because these two couples seemed to be unmatched and so they finally came to the, the, the place where they decided that they would get divorced, change partners, and marry. And that's exactly what they did. And the tragedy is they thought that it was God's will. Years later, I was serving in Idaho. I went down to speak at a church down in Pocatello, Idaho. And I thought I recognized this couple. And so afterwards, I went up and I introduced myself to them. They said, yes, we know you. And then as I began to put the pieces together, it was one of those couples. And when I visited with them for a short time, had prayer with them, they were living not free. They ran away. They escaped where nobody would know them. They were not free in Christ. The ultimate consequences of living under law is outright rebellion and not even sensing it. The law will always produce people who are always hiding their real selves. 
always acting, always pretending, and never being real. And I myself have experienced some of those things. To be free in Christ, what does that really mean? I mean, the Bible says in Galatians 5, 1, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't let that happen. And what is that yoke of slavery? It is the law. The law is the, the yoke. I know that we have some behavior texts in the Bible. And I know that people have said, you know, we don't understand it, Gary. You say that when you're born again, you're born of God, you're born of the Spirit, that God lives in you, through you, and that um, you don't need the law. But what about all these behavioral texts that there are? And here's the question that we should be asking. If we want to discover what's the difference between law and grace, the old covenant and the new covenant, the question we should be asking is this. What happens if I don't comply to those texts? What happens? Well, the, the law says you're in trouble. In fact, when you read some of the Old Testament you find that there are some seer, se severe punishment for breaking the law. In fact, the Bible says that the, the wages of sin is death. But under grace, there is no punishment. No punishment. Now, there are earthly consequences for sin. You better believe that. It affects the families. It could be devastating to the individual. Bad choices bring bad results. So there are consequences, earthly consequences to sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In the New Testament, Jesus died on the cross and he paid the penalty for sin. So you've heard me say it over and over. The sin issue is over. It was paid for. Paid in full. It was complete. Nobody will be lost because of sin. It'll only be because of unbelief. And when you start to understand grace, and it's a process as well, you say to yourself when you hear grace, there's no punishment for sin. Then you say, well, if there's no punish for, punishment for sin, then why behave? What's the incentive for being hate, to behave? Now you are beginning to understand grace. The moment that you say, well, then why? Why behave? Now God is leading you into an understanding of grace. Because God gave you a new heart. 
That's why you behave. It is now your nature. It is your very nature to, you don't want to sin. You want to do what is right. God has given you that new heart and that you no longer really want to sin. Now that's the difference between law and grace. Those behavior texts that we find in the New Testament are there for a reason. They're given to us so that we can see the character of God. It reveals that what God is doing in our lives. The Bible says that he is recreating us into the image of Christ. Now just think for a moment. This is something that God is doing for you. He is recreating you into the image of Christ. Now, when I first discovered that years and years ago, my prayer was, Lord, could you pick up the pace? Could you kind of rush it up a little bit? I don't feel that I'm doing that well. But God does it in his own timing. He recreates us. He teaches us. He shows us. He demonstrates to us what being a Christian is all about. Now, the old self, your old self has died. And that's the truth. And you can believe it because it is true. Now, the Bible says that we were resurrected into new life. We are united with him. We are united with Christ. We become one with Christ. And we don't want to sin. You have an obedient heart. It is a lie from the devil that says that you have a wicked heart. That you're a wicked person. You are not a wicked person. I don't care if you have wicked thoughts. You are not a wicked person. You are brand new to Christ. When you accepted him as your Savior, you were born again. You were born of God. You were born of the Spirit. You were given everything that you need to live out this life. Everything. But do you believe it? I mean, if you don't believe it, it's going to be a struggle. You're going to combine law and grace. You're going to, and I'll show you in another message that I'm preparing how we do that. And we do it. Even those of us who claim that we understand grace, we still have a tendency to mix it. Now, there's a popular belief that there are, we have two selves. You know, you have the old self and the new self. Um, you have that wicked heart, and then you have that good heart. And then you feel that you're divided. And then you don't know what to believe. Because you're led to believe that you're two people. You're two people in one. And a house divided cannot stand. No, the Bible says that you are not two selves. 
your old self died. When Christ was crucified, your old self was crucified. So that's not true. You are, you do not have two natures. Nowhere in the Bible can you find that you have a sinful nature. Now, the translation of the NIV, yes, they translated that into, they translated the word flesh into new uh, uh, sinful nature. But now they've corrected that. And so they, they don't use sinful nature anymore. They went back to using the flesh because they realized that it wasn't right. It wasn't doctrinally sound. So nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have a sinful nature. No. When you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you received a new nature. It was God's nature, born of God, born of the Spirit. You are a child of the living God. That's who you are. And remember this. God's love working in our heart deals with us on a level of sensitivity that no law or discipline could ever. Grace and freedom affect every part of your life, even our prayer life. For years, I tried to develop a what I thought was a prayer life. I've heard messages and about prayer closets and everything, and I've, and I've done it all. I've made a prayer, prayer closet, took all the clothes out, took all the shelves off, did everything, and made my own little prayer closet. It's, it was okay, but I tried to do everything I could to be spiritual because I didn't understand what Christ had already done in me. So my prayer life began to change. Instead of begging and pleading with God that he would change me, that he would lead me into, into making the right decisions and all of these things, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for wisdom because the Bible says that we should. But my prayer life consisted mostly of me pleading and begging and asking God to forgive me and going through all that. And then it changed. The more that I understood grace, the more that I understood what God was doing in my life, my prayer life changed. And all of a sudden, it started being, thank you, Lord. It became a, a, a prayer of thank you. You see, thank you is believing it. And I can recall when I first started, I'd say, Lord, I want to thank you that you are recreating me into your image. I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you that you made a promise to me that all things would work for good, even though it didn't seem like it was at the time. But I want to thank you for promising me that. I want to thank you for what you did in my children. You started a good work in them, and you promised that you would finish it. Thank you so much for doing that. 
the more that we understand grace, the more that we understand how much God really loves us and how much he really cares for us, our whole prayer life changes. God knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. He really does love us. He loves us to, to the extent that he gave his only begotten son to redeem us, to set us free. And being set and free in Christ is one of the most, is one of the most glorious things that could ever happen to anybody. You are free to be you. You, a very special person in the eyes of God. His whole desire is just to live his life through you so that others can see the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of what God does when he, when he comes into a, the life of a sinner. Thank you. Thank you believes. And believes is faith. So when we look at our life, we look at our circumstances, we look at our situation, we can still say thank you. Thank you that even though we're going through a difficult time in our life, thank you that you're going through it with me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you promised that you would meet all of our needs. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that all things, all things will work for good for those who love God. And as all we can say is, I believe you, Lord, because I love you. I don't always understand you, and I don't understand this whole thing about redemption or sanctification or justification. I may not understand that whole thing. But what I do understand, when you said that you gave us your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe that, and I believe you. And now that I believe you, I can see how you manifest yourself in so many thousands and thousands of different ways, and I appreciate that. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you. I thank you for each one here this morning. I thank you, Lord, that your spirit is here with us and ministering to us. I thank you that all the promises are true. I don't understand them all. I don't understand how everything works. But I just believe you. I believe you because I've already sensed what you have done in my life. And even all the trials and tribulations that I've gone through, I believe you because you went through it with me. And to this day, I feel not only more dependent upon you, but such a willing dependence that I don't know what I would do without you. So, Lord, I just pray that you'll continue to manifest yourself in our lives in any way that you see fit so that we can help others so that we can minister to others. And so, Father, I just pray and thank you for everything that you have done and are doing in and through us. 
I ask all these wonderful things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.